York. Brian Parks and I serve as one of the elders in the church. Bungee jumping, skydiving, zip lining. What do all these things have in common? I know you're thinking, those are three things I will never do in my life. <laughs> Maybe not all of you, but these three things require some faith to do. Faith that the bungee cord won't break. Faith that your parachute has been packed properly. Faith that when you push off from the platform, your zipline harness won't fall apart. But how much faith is required for each of these activities? Well, some of you would say that an enormous amount of faith is required. You're thinking, listen, even before I stepped off of the platform on either any one of those three activities, I would have died as a, in a heart attack. But really, enormous faith isn't required to do all three of these things. The bungee jumper doesn't have to confidently launch into a beautiful swan dive off of the platform. No, they can take one simple halting step off of the platform. And the same for the skydiver and the zipliner, for that matter. The amount of faith that any of these extreme sports would need to be successfully completed is really of zero importance compared with how trustworthy their instructor or their equipment is. The amount of faith is less important, far, far less important than what they are trusting in. A little faith in a properly working parachute results in a soft landing. How much faith is required to see God work in our lives? And what does faith, even a little faith, do? What actions does it produce in people? Those are a few of the key questions that we'll consider this afternoon as we open up God's Word. Today's sermon is based on a text in the Gospel of Mark, which is in the New Testament. Mark's Gospel is believed to be the earliest Gospel account that was written, and there's good evidence that it's based on the Apostle Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry. Now, just before our passage today, in Mark chapter 8, and then the beginning of chapter 9, Mark's Gospel has zoomed in on some pivotal interactions between Jesus and His disciples. The disciples, often led by Peter, they understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah sent from God. But when Jesus only then begins to explain to them that He will suffer, He will be killed, and then He will rise from the dead, they don't believe Him. They don't understand. In fact, Peter even rebukes Jesus, essentially saying this is a bad plan. And Jesus' response then is to teach them that anyone who wants to follow Him must deny himself and take up His cross. He said, if you save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for me and for the gospel, you will save your life. And then last week, we saw Jesus take three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a nearby mountain where Jesus began to glow intensely white. 
And two of the most important figures in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, appear along with him. And it was there that God then speaks from heaven and he tells them to listen to his beloved son. On their way down the mountain, Jesus reminded them again that he would suffer and be raised from the dead. But they don't understand still. The passage for today begins as the three three disciples and Jesus arrive at the bottom of the mountain to find a huge crowd and right in the middle of it a raging argument. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 9 in your Bibles, verses 14 through 29. We have some Bibles at the back of the room, and uh, if you'll just raise your hand, you don't even have to raise it all the way up, but just halfway, someone will bring you one of those Bibles. There we go. Okay, there's one here and then one on the aisle as well. Thank you for taking those to them. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29 is where we're looking. And if you got one of those Bibles and you're not sure how to get there, just ask the person next to you and maybe they'll know. Let me pray for us after I read, actually, (laughs) Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, And convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. This account in Mark is what you inspired him to write. It is your word. Feed us from it, Lord. Amen. 
Well, the big idea that I want you to see in this passage is this. Put your faith in the resurrected Jesus. Put your faith in the resurrected Jesus. The sermon this afternoon is going to have three points to it, and they're short, so I'm going to give them to you up front if you want to write them down now. I'll repeat them as I go as well. A failed faith, a failed faith, and then a fragile faith. And then finally, a son's resurrection. A failed faith, a fragile faith, and a son's resurrection. Well, the first point this morning is a failed faith. So when Jesus and the three disciples arrive at the bottom of the mountain, there's a great crowd of people gathered there, and there must have been shouting going on and urgent conversation happening. The scribes, who were religious experts in the laws that are in the Old Testament, they're arguing with the nine disciples that were left at the bottom of the mountain when Jesus went up to the top. But as much as a public argument will often gather a crowd and people want to press in and watch it, when the crowd sees Jesus, they run to Him and they greet Him. They're amazed to see Him. Whenever Jesus comes on the scene, He is the biggest thing going on. He's the most important thing, the one who gets all the attention. And He asks the scribes what they're arguing about with His disciples. But before they or the disciples can answer, a man in the crowd steps forward and he explains. He says that he has a son who's plagued by a spirit that makes the little boy mute. And not only that, but it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, it causes him to foam at the mouth, he causes him to grind his teeth, and it makes his whole body get stiff and rigid. Now some of you may have someone in your family who has a condition called epilepsy. Something similar to what this young, poor boy seems to be experiencing. If you've seen anyone who has epilepsy perhaps even go into a seizure, some epileptics go into what are called grand mal seizures. That's kind of the the largest, longest seizure that someone with epilepsy will go into. And you, if you've seen that, know how terrifying it is for those who are around them and even for them as well. I quickly looked it up on YouTube this week and it about brought me to tears to watch children in grand mall seizures. It's just awful and terrible. They lose all control of their bodies. The person is helpless And about the only thing that someone can do for them who's around them is to keep them away from dangerous obstacles so that they don't hurt themselves even further. But here in this passage, there is something even more sinister that's behind the seizures that this little boy is experiencing. The seizures are caused by an unclean spirit, a wicked, demonic spirit which is under the control and the direction of Satan. Now this father, in an act of desperation, brought his son to the disciples to cast it out. But there's that key sentence at the end of verse 18. Look with me there. The end of verse 18. He says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. 
They couldn't do it. Now that's a little strange because all the way back in chapter 6, Jesus had sent them out in pairs to go around from village to village preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing people and doing what else? Casting out demons. And before the end of chapter 6 is over, they return to Jesus and they report all that they had done. So they had been successful over and over and over again by the authority that Jesus had conferred or given to them. They had cast lots of evil spirits out of many people by this point in time, but not this time. Considering this whole scene, the crowd, the father's desperation, the boy's misery, and perhaps maybe especially the disciples' failure here, Jesus speaks out to no one in particular words of weariness, words of lament. A lament is a passionate expression of sorrow or grief. And he says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus is grieved by the absence of faith in God. He's, he's grieved by the absence of faith in himself. I want you to think for just a moment about the patience that God must be showing towards us, His creatures. Think about it. To be demonstrating throughout all of His creation, His existence, I mean, the sun, the stars, the mountains and the seas, the amazing diversity of life that's all around us, and yet mankind wonders if there's even a God there. Our hearts, our hearts are so hardened to God's existence, and even more to His love for us. I mean, there have been literally thousands and thousands of years of constant evidence for God and proof of His provision for creation, including us. And yet so many billions and billions of people that remain faithless. They trust in myths. They worship objects and creation, they collect and pile up money, and, or ultimately they just trust in themselves. That's what Jesus is lamenting here. It's weariness for God, but oh, He is so patient, so patient. You know, even Israel, God's chosen people, had failed to love and obey God. God calls them faithless, in fact. God accused them of being faithless repeatedly throughout the Bible, but especially through His prophets. And so, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 3, God uses this word faithless over and over again to describe Israel. He says, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? He's talking about their idolatry. Then in verses 12 and 14 of chapter 3, he says, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. And 14, Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. God has always wanted mankind to have faith in Him, to trust Him, to put their faith in God and God's rule in their lives. God says it's absolutely necessary for mankind to have faith in Him. 
So in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The righteous shall live by his faith. Or even in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now in the next point of the sermon, we'll see unbelief or faithlessness directly addressed by Jesus. The conversation with the boy's father about faith and belief is the centerpiece or the main thing that's happening in this passage. It's the focal point. But the disciples' failure that's mentioned at the very beginning of the passage and their conversation at the very end of the passage, they they frame the whole incident. And so clearly Mark wants us to think about what kind of faith these disciples have as well. Surprisingly, they don't have any. They had demonstrated power over evil spirits in the past, but something's changed. In chapter 8, Jesus warned them about having hard hearts, about having ears that couldn't hear and eyes that couldn't see. But they've not understood or accepted Jesus' words about His suffering, His death, and His resurrection. And now we're seeing the direct effect of faithlessness in the disciples. They're powerless. They can't cast out even a single evil spirit from this little boy. Nine of them. And if we skip to verses 28 and 29 at the end of the passage where the disciples ask Jesus why they couldn't cast out the Spirit, we learn even more. Look with me at those verses at the very end. Verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The great theologian Augustine said, Where faith fails, prayer perishes. Where faith fails, prayer perishes. It's not so much that the disciples didn't follow some divine protocol for driving out demons. It's not that they didn't simply bow their heads at the right time and say the right words. I mean, their lack of prayer demonstrated that they didn't even think they needed God to handle the situation. They had begun to think that the authority that Jesus had given to them back in chapter 6 was theirs and theirs alone. They were in control of it, they thought. They didn't really need Jesus. Their hard hearts are empty of faith right now, and so they fail. As a Christian, have you grown dull to your need to depend on Jesus in faith? Like the disciples, was there a time in the past where you were moving in great faith, where you saw God using you maybe in powerful ways? You saw answers to prayer. You were leaning into Him each and every day. But now, now it's different. You've grown used to God's work in you and through you, and so you're expecting it. And with that expectation comes a focus on yourself and not on God. And maybe you've grown in your ministry skills over the years. You've been a faithful attender at church. You've learned a lot about the Bible. Or you've even served in different roles at church. 
but you find yourself largely depending on those skills and your record of participating in ministry and not on God himself. Oh, it's so easy to do. Brothers and sisters, our faith can ebb and flow. It can increase and de decrease just like the disciples. We can become complacent, spiritually lazy. Is your focus on just doing Christian things? Or is it on faithfully walking with Jesus in dependence on Him each and every day? One of the biggest indicators of that kind of spiritual drift that we all can experience in our lives from time to time is a lack of heartfelt, regular prayer. We see that. Jesus names it. The father brought his son and they must have felt like, hey, we've got this. We've done this before. Hey, who wants to take care of the little boy? Their focus wasn't on asking and trusting God to work through them as he had when they had gone out on mission before. And when the evil spirit resisted their commands to leave the boy, they threw up their hands. It's not working like it did before, they thought. What more can we do? Now, faced with the seemingly impossible task, they could have turned to God in prayer, of course. They could have cried out to Him, What do we do, God? Prayer, of course, is a notoriously difficult spiritual discipline for Christians. Why? <laughs> because true prayer is driven by faith in God. I mean, you and I can muster up a few days few consecutive days of prayer just based on sheer willpower, but oh, try to sustain that for more than a week regularly, heartfelt prayer, without faith, <laughs> you can't do it. Listen, if prayer is hard for you, like it is for most people, let me share just two ways that you can fight against faithlessness by growing in prayer. First, Take every opportunity to pray with other people. Take every opportunity to pray with other people. I know when I feel weak and prayerless, I know that I need other people to help me get jump-started, to hold me accountable to pray. I need to hear their prayers for me and hear their prayers as an example to me. I mean, we're gathering to pray for ourselves and various other concerns after this service, It'll last about 45 minutes. You'll actually learn a lot about different people in the church as well as pray. We'll pray together. And staying for those two times a month, it might be a way that you could begin to grow in prayer. Another thing to do is not to miss an opportunity to pray whenever you're with another believer. So I'm always a little scared when I tell someone, I'll pray for you later. <laughs> that I won't do it. I mean, I'll forget. So oftentimes I'm forgetful. And so I try to pray right there on the spot. Most of you might have experienced this from me. I hope you have. You're going to have to be awkward, okay, if you're going to do this. You're going to have to just interrupt, and you're going to have to say, you know what, why don't I pray right now? And I don't care where you are. If you're in a coffee shop, you're in a restaurant, you're out on a street corner. Pray for that person on the spot. There's rarely a time that I've had a conversation of significance with 
one of our members, Charles Jensen, that he hasn't asked, how can I pray for you, Brian, and then gone on to do it right in my presence. It's been such an encouragement to me. Break out of a prayerless slump by praying with other people. Pray with other people. Depend on one another. Look to one another to grow in that area. The second thing is don't read your Bible without responding to God in prayer. Always respond to God in prayer, no matter how little you read or how much you read. Finish your reading with some kind of prayerful response to God based on what you've read. I mean, maybe your prayer will be, Lord, I have no idea what that meant. (laughs) Can you please help me understand what your word is teaching me? And you might not get an answer right then, but if you keep at it day after day, week after week, year after year, God will answer that prayer. I'm confident. Maybe it'll be a characteristic of God that you've seen in the Scriptures that you can praise Him for. Maybe it's an example of disobedience that you want Him to guard you from. Maybe it's an example of obedience that you want to imitate, that you ask Him for help. Talk to God about what you're reading His Bible. Ask Him to work in you. Well, before we move on to consider the Father and His conversation with Jesus, it's important for us to note something here. The wicked treatment of the boy by this demon is the most spectacular thing in the passage, of course. There's lots of details. It's gripping. And you could be forgiven for thinking that it's the greatest danger that you and I might face in ourselves. But faithlessness and unbelief in Jesus, like we see in the disciples, is the greatest form of opposition and the most serious obstacle to God's work in the world than all of the demonic possession that has ever existed. Unbelief, faithlessness, is greater danger. In fact, Satan's greatest victory is to lull people into prayerless contentment and faithless satisfaction with their lives. Oh, don't get caught in prayerless patterns of life, brothers and sisters. Now, if we see a failed faith in the disciples in this incident, we see a different situation with the Father. In Him, we see a fragile faith. That's the second point this afternoon, a fragile faith. Jesus is grieved by the lack of faith that he sees, but listen, his grief isn't more than his compassion. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. In, 21, in verse 21, he asks the boy's father, how long has this been happening? The answer, from childhood. And what is this evil spirit's ultimate intention in this boy's life? Look at verse 22. It intends to destroy this boy, a boy who's made in the image of God. And so the father pleads with Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus' reply is quick and to the point. Look at verse 23. Oh, it's such an important verse. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. If you can, and there's doubt in the man's request. I mean, Jesus is 
disciples failed. Of course, that might mean that perhaps Jesus will fail himself even if he tries. But Jesus is quick to correct this father's doubts. He says, all things are possible for one who believes. And this father, this desperate father, immediately senses the rebuke to his doubts in what Jesus has said. And so he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Verse 23 is one of those verses in the Bible that's often misunderstood and misused. And we have to be careful when we study God's Word, when we read it. You and I don't want to be, you and I don't want to be misquoted as saying something that we didn't intend to say. And the consequences are even greater when it's God's Word and it gets misused. Look, the difference is the difference between the truth and a lie. Now, one way that you could understand this verse would be to interpret Jesus as saying, all things are possible for the person with a certain amount of faith or a certain quality of faith. In other words, you need big and strong faith if you expect God to work. But the problem with that interpretation is that the man's declaration that he's teetering on the edge between no faith and just a little faith, maybe, rules that out. How can he see God work in the situation? I mean, he's a man of fragile, frail faith at best. Why would Jesus do anything for him if that's what that verse meant? No, the correct way to understand this verse is to hear Jesus saying essentially, everything is possible if you have faith in what I can do for you. If you have faith in me, it's me. I'm the focus, Jesus is saying, not you and your faith. In that case, the emphasis isn't on how big and strong the man's faith is. The emphasis is on his relationship of trust in Jesus. Now, this is not permission or an order from Jesus to screw up really big and strong faith as if that were actually possible for us to do. And it's not permission for us to try to go to Jesus and just get whatever we want in life. No, no, to interpret it that way is a lie and it's a corruption of Christ's teaching. I wonder if you noticed that the very thing that Jesus said that the disciples didn't do, pray, is what this man is actually doing in a moment of desperation. He's praying. He prayed, help my unbelief. His weak, fearful cry to the Savior was a prayer of faith, as weak as it was. Brothers and sisters, look, a weak cry to a strong Savior results in a certain reply from our compassionate God. A weak cry to a strong Savior results in a certain reply from our compassionate God. God will answer that prayer of faith. It may not be the kind of rescue that you would design. It may not be the answer that you want to hear at the time. But be assured, God loves you and has your best intention in mind, no matter how He answers it. Brothers and sisters, are you here this afternoon and you're wondering, you're wondering to yourself, if Jesus can, I mean, your, your faith perhaps is meager and small. Maybe you're even wondering if you have any faith in your heart at all. 
doubt feels like it's swallowing up what little faith you thought you had, listen, I encourage you, cry out to Him. Call out to Jesus. And more than specific remedies for your difficult situation, I encourage you, ask Him to help your unbelief. Ask Him to fortify your faith. Ask Him for faith that will keep you standing in the midst of the storm, even stronger, if the storm gets stronger. One pastor has said, when we're so disheartened that all we can do is moan, Lord, help me, we are strong, we are safe. And when we're doing so well that it doesn't even occur to us to call on Him, we're foolish and we're weak. The disciples are being foolish and weak despite their ministry accomplishments in the past. But this desperate father with fragile and weak faith has been moved to prayer in a strong Savior. Listen, if you're not a Christian, do you doubt that this Jesus is who the Bible claims that He is? <laughs> and listen, you're not the first one, and you won't be the last. But I wonder if you might see this father as an example for you to follow. Let your thoughts of is he really there? Be transformed into a prayer that says, are you really there, Jesus? Help me overcome my unbelief if you're there, Jesus. Call out to him like this father. Listen, do you have unresolved questions? Unresolved questions that you feel like, I, I have to have those resolved before I put my trust and faith in Jesus. Listen, I have unresolved questions. <laughs> and, and I think every genuine Christian that's in this room has questions about what the Bible teaches. They don't understand everything. There's things they like to know. There's things that we look forward to asking God when we're face-to-face -face with Him one day. But you mustn't let that stop you from trusting in Christ. And before you begin to look to Him for the all things that He says He's capable of, know that your doorway into the life of trusting Him is to trust Him for salvation. For the forgiveness of your sin, which clears the way for you to be at peace with a holy and righteous God. The holy and righteous God who made you. Listen, you, you may think you need God's miraculous assistance in, in lots of other areas of your life, but be assured, be assured that your place of greatest need is the miracle of having your sins forgiven. And Jesus makes that possible, only Jesus. He secured that forgiveness when He shed His blood on the cross he didn't deserve to do that. But when he did that, he was doing that as a substitute for all of us who did deserve to shed our blood. Who did deserve the condemnation of God. He was our substitute. That was his chief mission on earth. The miracle of salvation of God creating new life in you by causing you to be born again through faith in Him, that is His greatest miracle. 
And it's still the greatest miracle for all of those, all of us who are Christians here. It's still, there's, there's no other earthly deliverance or miraculous provision that any of us have experienced, and we've experienced a lot of that as Christians. <laughs> but none of it, none of it tops the miraculous provision of forgiveness for our sins. Listen, for you, just like for us, it's the entry point into a loving relationship with Him. That miracle. Don't bother turning to Him for anything else before you recognize your sin. You turn away from it and you look to Him in faith. You can do it now. You can do it today. Your need for salvation is even more urgent than this little boy's rescue from certain destruction by this spirit. Turn to Christ in faith. Well, this father had fragile faith, but even that little bit of faith that prompted his desperate prayer welcomed in a dramatic display of Jesus' divine power. When faith confronts demonic forces like in this passage, God's limitless power gives us the only assurance that we need and God's sovereign purposes are the only thing that restrict it. Let me say that one more time. God's limitless power gives us the only assurance that we need. In other words, it's not dependent on the quality or quantity of our faith. And God's sovereign purposes are the only thing that restrict it. In other words, what God wants to accomplish, He will accomplish. That's the only thing that restricts God's work. And boy, did He work with great power and compassion here, didn't He? The Father had a fragile faith, but it resulted in the Son's resurrection. That's the third point this afternoon. The Son's resurrection. Look back in the passage at verses 25 through 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. This wicked and murderous spirit is no match for King Jesus. With a word, he banished the spirit which had plagued this little boy from childhood, and what's more, he banished it forever. He said, never come back. All of Jesus' miracles point to his defeat of Satan and sin and ultimately death. And if you turn to Christ in faith, your sins are declared forgiven as quickly as Jesus banished this spirit. It happens just like that. They're gone. They don't count against you anymore. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What great news. What wonderful freedom and liberation this boy experienced when Jesus lifted him up. When we trust in Christ, our freedom from sin's curse and death's sting is even greater. What power there is in Jesus Christ. 
Power to save sinners. Power to rescue us from certain eternal punishment. Now, I've called this third point the Son's resurrection, but you may have noticed that He didn't actually die. But Mark has used a collection of words and phrases. He reports, the boy was like a corpse. They said, he's dead. But Jesus lifted him up and he arose. So after Jesus was transfigured at the top of the mountain on the way down, the disciples had wondered what Jesus meant when he spoke about rising from the dead. And now they've seen firsthand at the bottom of the mountain a father's beloved son who suffered at the hands of a demonic spirit, who seemed to be dead but arose. In the original language, literally was resurrected. All by the power of God. Mark doesn't want us to miss this. He wants us to think about God the Father's beloved Son, who would suffer at the hands of demonically driven men, who would in fact die. But by the power of the Spirit, God resurrected him to new life. Life which he offers to all men and women today and until he returns. Do you see him? Will you believe in him? Will you put your trust in the resurrected Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many of us in this room who have fragile faith. Oh Lord, give us more faith in your great and strong Son, Jesus. And there are some here who have no faith. Lord, we pray that you would give them the gift of faith. In Christ's name, amen. Where we're going to sing of God's great faithfulness. Turn with me to page 13 in your